Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. And Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries, separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries here with you. Uh, welcome. Every Friday, as you know, we come to you as a, the uh, the narrator says from just outside the swamp in the festival of Washington, D.C. So we're going back to my wheelhouse issue today with a guest, and that is the JFK assassination, as I'm sure all of you know. That's uh, been my uh, my pet baby for uh, many years, so too long. <laughs> but I have a guy here today. John Mancino is someone who's really flown under the radar. Not many people that, that are unknown to me, but and I think that's by design, obviously. But he goes way back, uh, even before me. And uh, he's uh, had a fascinating career. Uh, he talks about, he, we're going to talk about his relationship with Marguerite Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. So I'll let him talk about it as much as he wants. But I want to uh, credit uh, Steve Cameron, my, my friend, our mutual friend, who uh, brought us together. And Steve is a great guy, as you know, been a big supporter of me. And uh, the, the, his full story, I think John's full story is going to be in Steve's uh, upcoming book, Frame Up, The Conspiracy to Falsely Incriminate Lee Harvey Oswald. So look for that as well. And uh, or John may be writing his own book. So John Mancino, thanks for coming on the show. And he's going to be on Nightline, ABC's Nightline later tonight to discuss with Sharon Tate's sister, because he also is very involved in in that case as well. So he's uh, he's managed to 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 lower himself to coming on this podcast. So I really appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks for being here, John. Believe me, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. So, so tell us how, you know, we, obviously we, Steve Cameron brought us together and uh, told me about you. And I was fascinated because I, and I want you to start, well, before we get to Marguerite Oswald, I want to tell you my feelings on her, but uh, tell us again, how you started, you were starting to tell the story, how you were a Catholic kid in school and everything. So tell us when you, when was your interest triggered in the JFK assassination? Well, Kennedy came by our school during the latter half of the election uh, campaign in 1960. And we were just fascinated. We were Catholics growing up. And so uh, the day he was assassinated um, in that Catholic school, we were sent home early, of course. Um, and all my friends wanted me to go out and play ball with them, which we played baseball, football, you name it. But I said, no, I'm going home and I'm watching the news. I said, what? Yeah, I'm going to watch the news. So I glued myself to the TV for the whole rest of the night. And after my parents put us all to bed and they went to their bedroom, I sneaked up, turned the TV on and watched them parade Lee out like, uh, you know, the first time before the press. And I thought, wow, here I am. I'm in sixth grade. And this guy doesn't look like he's worried about anything. <laughs> he's defiant. He's confident. Um, he doesn't look like he just assassinated the president of the United States or even killed a police officer. He just looked too calm, collected, and confident. So I was fascinated. So I, following that episode, I read anything, everything I could get my hands on. And then I finally decided um, to interview Jesse Curry. And the couple of things I really want to talk about today that convinced me that Lee had not only didn't shoot President Kennedy, but he had nothing to do with it whatsoever. 
there's a few key points. One was uh, Jesse Curry. I interviewed him on his patio in his backyard in Dallas. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jesse Curry was the Dallas uh, police, police chief. chief. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I asked him point blank after several questions, and he says, I said, Did you, do you still believe that Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President Kennedy? The next words out of his mouth were, turn off your tape recorder. So I was a pretty young guy. Uh, I think I was 20 years old or something like that, um, early 20s. And, and I said, okay. Uh, I respected his wishes. And he said I did that day until he sat in on a couple of interrogations, one in which Lee said that he was on the first floor in the lunchroom and that there were two African-American ladies in there at the same time. So he said later on at the next interrogation, they told Lee, well, we talked to those two ladies and they didn't see you in the lunchroom. And Curry said to me that Lee leaned over this little table and point blank to the detective said, then how did I know they were in there? Because everybody except the building manager was outside watching the parade. And Curry said to me at that moment, he finally had doubts. And, uh, and he said, but don't quote me. This is just between you and me. Um, and so I thought that's, that's pretty key right there. So, um, and then I decided to interview Marguerite and she had been mistreated. Oh, I can't tell you how much, but uh, I won't waste the time to go into those discussions. But I will say that I flew to Dallas from Los Angeles and uh, I got there, called her up and she changed her mind. She didn't want to, she was afraid I was going to take advantage of her again. So I must have been on the phone with her for an hour and a half and finally convinced her to let me come there. So I went to Fort Worth and, uh, and within, honest to God, within 15 minutes, she was completely relaxed. And I told her in those 15 minutes why I didn't believe that her son assassinated the President of the United States. And it's like she warmed up um, out of a, like a fire. And I was, I was kind of shocked because of the phone conversation when I was in Dallas, you know, turning me down, you know, at the last second. So we became good friends, um, kind of a funny story, um, two cup funny stories. She loved uh, Long John Silver's. So I took her out to Long John Silver's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was her favorite restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then the next time I went, I took my brother and my girlfriend at the time. And I tell you, this woman who was painted as being horrible by this media. Yes. She was as sharp as a tack, and not only that, as cordial and polite as you could be, uh, and certainly as I could expect, far beyond what I expected. And I had a rental car, and I'm, I'm in the car with my brother, and I'm reading through some documents on the way to Lee's grave. And my girlfriend's in Marguerite's car, and we're on the Dallas-Fort Worth Turnpike, and she's going 95 miles an hour, and my brother and I can't keep up with her. I said, Steve, don't lose her. I don't know where we're going. So anyway, we're on the turnpike, and you have to throw your change in this little metal, metal cup, and, I, and he missed it. So we had to drive backwards, and by this time, she was almost out of sight. Yeah. Finally, we had to floor it. We had to go almost 100 miles an hour to catch up wow. to Marguerite. Wow. Oh, 
Little old lady from Pasadena, man. That's a that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I thought, boy, this this lady is nothing like what the press has painted her as. And and I just became yeah. very good friends with her. Um, another funny story, and I, I won't belabor it too long, but one day she misplaced my phone number, and this was before cell phones, obviously. And she looked up information. John Mancino. My father's name is John as well. So she's. This is. This is year, a couple years later during the House Select Committee hearings, mm -hmm. and she was livid about what happened that day. And she's ranting and raving to my father, and he <laughs> figures out that it's it's me she was trying to reach because he knew my background, and it was kind of funny. And she apologized, and she said, oh, "I'm so sorry. No, no, don't worry about it." And so. Uh, that's kind of another funny story, but she shared with me her conversation with Lee that night at the Dallas jail. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she had found a document. She said she wasn't going to give it to me because she was still nervous about it getting into the wrong hands. Sure. Uh, but it was a document inferring that Lee was either office of Naval intelligence or CIA. And the way he had come back from Russia, was very suspicious to her as well. Um, and so um, she questioned him and she said, what's going on here? And, and if you don't mind, I can read what she, you know, I can quote what she said to me. And she said, um, what's the real story here? And she, and Lee kept saying, mom, don't worry about this. Everything's going to be fine. Just give it a couple days. Don't ask me this just relax everything's going to be fine and she said but and he said mom everything's going to be fine and so um that was powerful to me as well uh and then not long after that um i visited her matter of fact i uh, she allowed me to sleep a while on one of lee's old beds at least that's what she told me it was. And and uh, I've told friends that since then, and they just, wow, wow. But anyway, um, I wound up meeting uh, how I was interviewed in a newspaper about my relationship. Two people saw it. One was David Lifton, the author of Best Evidence, and then the other one was uh, Dick Margison. And Dick Margison, when he contacted me, because the newspaper gave him my office number, I met with him and a friend. I didn't want to go alone. And he gave me this name, Walter Pratt. But I learned shortly thereafter that his real name was Dick Margison. I'm sure you know who he is. Um, and he shared with me some information that uh, was pretty powerful. I went with my friend and on the third visit, on the third visit, he had this extra bedroom and he'd taken the closet doors off and put a love seat in there. So my friend and I are sitting there and we're listening to him talk and around his this he used it as an office was a chronological diagram with photos and words about what transpired from the late 50s and uh, the third visit i'm looking at the wall and there's a photograph there that wasn't there the previous two visits and in that photograph were two people i thought never had any business being in the same photo photograph down on the Florida Keys, one was Gary Patrick Hemming, mm -hmm. and the other one was Lauren Hall. Yes. And I thought, he put this photo up on the wall on purpose. So Dick Margison, he was an electronics guy. He was a, he could wire anything. And he and Larry Howard and Lauren Hall 
were working on Operation Mongoose, which had been terminated. And he said he turned to Larry Howard, who had become like a brother to him. What are you going to do not to quote unquote, the war is over? And he said he said that Howard turned around and and did stopped in his tracks and said, we're going to do something so big that the United States is going to be forced to back another invasion of Cuba. Next thing he knew was months down the road, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. So that was extremely important, in my opinion. And the, the, the next key that thing that happened was um, in 1983, mid-1983, I had come home from work. I was a manufacturing manager for a big factory, and I walked in. And that Baxter Ward, I, I don't know if you remember the name Baxter Ward. Yeah, he was, he was the, associated with the uh, RFK assassination. Yeah, yeah, and he was the, an L.A. County supervisor for decades. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, he's doing a commentary because he had gone back to KBC in Los Angeles, uh, Burbank to be exact. And I heard the word rifle. So um, I immediately focused on the TV. And what he was talking about was he had met two guys one by the name of Hapcock, and he met them in early 1964 at a dinner party. And he forgot all about it, and then 10 years later in 1974, he bumped into him again. And then he, in 1983, he did this commentary, and he was kicking himself. And I later met him several times, but he was kicking himself for not following up on this. And he talked about a rifle that was found in Daly Plaza the day after the assassination by the FBI, and that FBI agent took that rifle apart, apart and found Hapcock's fingerprints on the inside of it. Well, Hapcock was a co-partner in a private detective agency in Los Angeles, as well as a pawn shop on the first floor. So naturally, he went out to Los Angeles and asked him why his prints were on there. And so he said two guys pawned the rifle and set of golf clubs a month before the assassination. One week before the assassination, they came back, redeemed the rifle, left the clubs. So I met with Dick Mar. I took Dick, Dick Margison with me, and by the third visit, Baxter Ward point blank asked, who are the two guys that you're talking about that you worked with in the CIA on Mongoose? And he said, Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. Baxter Ward says, lock my door. We're at his office in Burbank, ABC Studios. He says, lock my door. So I locked, I locked the door. He opened his desk after unlocking it and handed us affidavits from the two uh, partners in the pawn shop. Hapcock was one, and I'm trying to remember, the, his name is on the tip of my tongue. Gave us these, and sure enough, the guys that pawned the rifle and golf clubs were Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. Right. So um, at that point, um, uh, Dick Margeson proceeded to tell Baxter Ward that Larry Howard's mom owned a Rambler station wagon. And Baxter Ward assumed that could have been the, the uh, car that was found, uh, that was seen leaving uh, Daly Plaza and uh, said he was going to check it out. Well, about three weeks later, he called me back. He said he had somebody in the DMV, confirmed it was Larry Howard's mom's car. And, uh, and then he said, I'm going to do one more thing, and then, guys, I'm out of this. 
and I asked him, what are you going to do? I'm taking this to Ed Meese, who at the time was Ronald Reagan's attorney general. Yeah. So he called me a few weeks later and he said, come on back up. So I grabbed Margison. We went back up and he said, uh, gentlemen, um, Ed Meese told me he wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole. Wow. And too many people are already gone. And he said, now I'm out of it. So I had a little son who was just months old at the time, and I sort of backed out of it for quite a while until David Lifton kept pressing me to get more and more involved and questioning me about my relationship with Lee's mother. And well, I speaking of, speaking of, that's I, a bombshell story, man, Ed Meese, but, but, and people realize that this is the Attorney General of the United States, and uh, David Lifton told me years ago that uh, – that behind the scenes, Ronald Reagan was obsessed with the JFK assassination, and he kept he the pile. He kept the pile of books about the assassination on his night yeah. table in the White House. So that's that's very odd. And of course, he shot himself. But there's a question that you see on the screen there. Harlan Stonewall wants to know what year did you get connected up with Oswald's mother? I believe it, I met Margaret. I believe it was seventy-five or seventy-six. I'd have to go back to my notes. I have a file, but it's in storage right now, and I wasn't able to get it before today. But uh, I did want to say that um, I was so upset once I had spent two or three visits with Marguerite at how she was painted in the press. I mean, they yeah. just butchered her. Um, yes. She was one of the smartest individuals I had ever met in my life. I mean, and granted, I was in my early 20s, but she was as sharp as a tack. And I'm telling during those House Select Committee hearings, she was she would call me on the phone and she said, this is wrong. This is right. This needs to be explored further. The committee is not going far enough with these questions. She was just right on the ball. And um, but in terms of uh, the the lighter side, one of the things that she shared with me was how lonely she was after the assassination. Nobody came to her defense. She missed um, her daughter-in-law. She missed her grandkids. Um, and I mean, sometimes we'd be at long john silvers it was always long john silvers i don't think i ever took her anywhere else and she just broke down in tears because and i said what's the matter and she says i haven't been able to see june lee or rachel it, it they're my grandkids and it, it brought tears to my eyes yeah and well, one was... time when when i was with my brother he came on another visit there was a couple and and marguerite didn't get out you know she barely survived well, you on. you were you were probably her best friend at that point wouldn't you say she said i was um yeah. and i i mean i was she was one of my best friends absolutely but one time at long john silvers there was a, a table uh, full of people that wasn't that far away and they kept staring and my brother's my little brother's a lot more bold than i am and they kept looking at marguerite and then mumbling amongst themselves and then looking at her again and my brother got up from the table and walked over and he says why don't you mind your own business how would you like to be in this poor lady's shoes do you think think you'd be comfortable with it what has she ever done to you and they shut up like clams and i was really proud of him and she marguerite looked at my brother and said thank god for people like you that they still exist and i was touched personally touched because she was so berated uh, and the press, and and not only that, but but painted as a nut, 
literally. Yeah, well, let's. Uh, I mean, I, first of all, I'll say hi to Steve Cameron. He's watching. Uh, good to hi. see you. Say hi, Donna John. Um, but I, I let's go back a little bit because, and I I've talked and in my next uh, edition of Hidden History, which will hopefully be published next year. Uh, I go, and that's why it's wonderful. I'm meeting you. It's somebody that I, I you know, I wish I, I had known I would have put this in the book, but I know, uh, you know, you, you have to do what you have to do with it. But uh, Marguerite was from the moment she was, first of all, it took me a, decades of researching this case to realize that Marguerite was the first person to question this. All of the, all of the so-called conspiracy theorists, all the researchers, they owe a debt of gratitude to her. She was the first one to question it. She hired Mark Lane and right, fed him right. information to, to represent Oswald's interest before the uh, yeah. before the right. commissions. But she, from the very moment that Bob Schieffer, who those of you who know the mainstream media, you know this guy stayed around at CBS for decades, so you know yeah. what his propensity for truth was. And uh, he's <laughs> the one that started painting this picture of her as that you know yeah. she uh, you know she was a uh, money grubber, complaining and whining, and she supposedly was acting jealous of uh, Marina. And you said that when you were with her. She had nothing but kind words to say about Absolutely, Marina Oswald's wife. But kind words. Absolutely. She never said one cross word about Marina to me anyway. Not one. And she um, literally had tears in her eyes when I brought up Rachel and June Lee. And um, I mean, it took like at least six, seven minutes to calm her down. We're in the middle of a restaurant. Yeah. And, and you know, she... One of the last times I spoke with her, she promised my, all her files to me. And after she passed away, I talked to Robert, Lee's brother. Oh, yeah. And I can't tell you, I have never been treated more rudely than in my entire life. First thing he said was, I know who you are and you're wrong about my brother. And I said, well, frankly, I can't tell you that you're wrong. Um, you have your own opinion. I'm not going to even attempt to change your mind. But I probably have forgotten more about your brother than you even know your, yourself. So your brother had nothing to do with President Kennedy's assassination. So he wasn't involved at all. I remember reading something, um, an interview about from Rachel. Look, I think it was only about a year ago where she didn't believe that her father assassinated Kennedy and if I remember right, I don't want to misquote that she wasn't sure if he wasn't involved in any way. But I can tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with that assassination, was set up as far back as that strange visit of two people who had no business being in the same photograph in the Florida Keys. Absolutely. Well, Sam Bodistree says he has no sympathy for Oswald. He put himself in that situation, but he didn't, you know, I don't know if you agree with me, John, but uh, my research indicates that Lee Harvey Oswald was, as his mother Marguerite first said, some kind of intelligence agent, whether it was OMI, yes. CIA, FBI. I believe, as Jim Garrison did, that at the time of the assassination, he was on assignment and he was told to infiltrate a group. That would have included perhaps on the outskirts, Lauren Hall and Larry Howard and all the anti-Castro Cubans, David Ferry, Clay yeah. Shaw, all the rest of them. That was his assignment. And they might have all been told because they all had most of these people were, were uh, connected. They may have all been told the same thing. Hey, yeah. report back on what's going on. And they unfortunately for Oswald, they chose him to be the patsy. But uh, yeah, so he's he was doing his job. He was, as Jim Garrison once said, he was in many ways a genuine American hero. He was an under, well, you know, not, undercover yeah, agent. I mean, 
first of all, he, the way he was painted in the press, just like his mother, uh, was was horrible. I mean, he was he was intelligent. I mean, he was. I mean, you look at some of the interviews he did. I mean, he wasn't somebody that just fell off a truck. For a guy who was only 24 years old, he was extremely knowledgeable, far yes. more than I was at that age. Oh yeah. And and but it was deliberate. The painting of his picture was done deliberately, just like it was done to his mother. And and you know it's unfortunate um, because and, and look what they did to Marina. You know, she was threatened with deportation if she didn't go yes. along with this yes. official position. And and then finally, she realized after seeing other evidence, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I know you know who Dr. McClellan was. Sure. To, he was one of the doctors. Of Robert McClellan, sure. Yeah. yeah, sure. He refused to his dying day to change his story that President Kennedy was hit from the front in the throat. And not only that, but it, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the wound in Kennedy's back wasn't even known in Dallas. And it only went in one less than a finger's length deep, which was confirmed by the autopsy doctor, Dr. Hume, in, uh, he was in, in at Bethesda. So you got a set of doctors in Dallas that never saw the back wound, a set of doctors at the Bethesda autopsy, uh, period that didn't know that the throat wound was a wound because they did the tracheotomy right through the same incision. Right. Why cut another hole? Uh, exactly. So, it, it, I mean, to fumble something like this with the president of the United States is pretty pathetic. It's, well, it's, that introduced that introduced Lifton into the equation, David exactly. Lifton, because he, he looked at the difference. That was his theory is one way of explaining how all the doctors, everybody in Dallas, everybody at Parkland, she talked about a big blowout in the back of JFK's head, which would yeah. indicate a shot from the front. Uh, they get to they get to Bethesda. They don't talk about that, and now you see the autopsy photos and X-rays, which obviously have been uh, you know, oh, yeah. faked, altered because they they show yeah. an intact back of the head. So all those people weren't lying. But uh, everybody hates Raymond. Thank you for your comment there about Nick McD uh, Nick McDonald. Uh, and you have a friend, please e email me at author a u t h o r author Jeffries. J-E-F-F-R-A-S at gmail.com. I'd love to, to know more about this because that sounds like somebody who hasn't talked to anybody else. So I'm always interested in that. Uh, so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But so no, I, I think people, and I'm fascinated by the Marguerite Oswald thing because she, and in this book coming up, A Hidden History Book, I, I try to defend her and I talk about how unfairly she was treated. For instance, you know this, but uh, after the assassination, she was persona non grata. She was unfairly fired from her job. I mean, yeah. she didn't sh even if Oswald had shot somebody, she didn't shoot anybody. Well, she today, didn't. she couldn't be. Today, with the labor laws they have today, they couldn't yeah. fire. And she was un unemployed. She was probably 60-ish at that time. She yeah. was unemployable after that. Nobody would hire her. So right. people like Schieffer and all these other parasite writers that said, oh, she's she's trying to sell Oswald's artifacts and all this. She had no other recourse. How was she supposed to earn income? Exactly. exactly. So, I mean, and, and, and I think it's interesting that she, because one of the things they did paint her as being jealous of Marina and saying, Marina's gotten so much money, I've got nothing and all no, that. But obviously it's, false. it's like completely. everything else, you know, so so. You found her to be a, a, a kind woman, and understandably, I, I would have been probably more bitter than her because uh, you're walking Absolutely. your life uh, probably young enough. Her to life be... was ruined. Her life was ruined after that. Not yeah. only was she not able to be close to her family, um, her her daughter-in-law and her grandchildren, but she was she was looked upon 
terribly by the rest of the entire population in this yes, country. Yes, sure. I mean, how and to go through her the whole rest of her life like that, you know, I, I it would literally bring tears to my eyes when she was. Oh, and even, I don't know if you, apart. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, this this is one of the many reasons I can't stand Stephen King. Oh. The novelist out there, but he, you know, in his in his movie, uh, I mean, his movie, his book, uh, eleven twenty two sixty three, which shockingly he comes out and and supports the official story, like all these people in prominent positions do. Yeah. But uh, he has a scene in there, and and he's been interviewed about it, where he 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 just completely made this up and said that Marguerite used to bring young Lee out in, in when he was starting to develop. She would bring him out in the living room every night and inspect him to see how his manhood was developing. This, is, this isn't based on even some absurd site. It's absolutely made up. And this guy, King, in interviews, continues to parrot this kind of – and nobody's there to contradict him. What, what is the source for that? Well, and he won't have anybody on his program to contradict him either. So I find that ironic as well it, and pathetic, quite frankly. I mean, I found Marguerite to be a kind, gentle soul who was was nothing like she was painted in the press. She was very sharp, sharp as a tack. I mean, she knew more, far more about the assassination yes. than I first met her yes. than I ever dreamed about. And I, as I said, the night that this happened, the day this happened, that night when I saw them parade Lee before the, the press the first time, I thought how could this guy be so calm and collected and confident yeah. if he just assassinated the the world's leader? I said, this is, this is just, I'm only in sixth grade and I recognize that. So well, he's probably I, assuming, I guess, that he's, that he's naively assuming his handler well, is going to bail him out, I guess. And he was hinting to Marguerite that night yeah. that everything's going to be resolved. He said, yeah. everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get an attorney. They're going to, they're going to discover some things that you're not going to see in, on TV, Mom. Just leave it alone. The last thing you said to her was, leave it alone, Mom. Everything's going to be fine. Absolutely. And, and sure enough, you know, he never got to live that out. No, he did. White Wolf asked, how far back do you think Oswald was set up as a patsy? I, I'll let you hand, answer that too. Months, years. But I can say that we know uh, Oswald was impersonated in the, in the weeks leading up to the assassination in Dallas. But what people I'm, I'm looking into this more. Joan Mellon had some great work on the uh, the New Orleans element. And my friend Bob Wilson and uh, William Law, my friends uh, and I are writing a book. Uh, it's going to be published in time for the 60th anniversary, uh, focusing on Dean Andrews and some of the other people in New Orleans. And uh, most people don't realize Oswald was also being impersonated in New Orleans. There were lots of witnesses who talked about meeting somebody that said he was Oswald, looked like Oswald, saying uh, Catholic leaders are going to be killed shortly and creating disturbances in places the exact same. So if that answers your questions, I, I would think that uh, you know, that he was being set up as the patsy for at least weeks, if not months, because these impersonations with Silvio Odio and everywhere else, they were designed to implant that name Oswald in the public mind with possible violence towards JFK. But I mean, I, I don't know what you think of that. Well, I can tell you this, um, that photograph that Dick Margeson had on his wall that had Francis, uh, excuse me, Gary Patrick Hemming and Lauren Hall in it, that goes back long before the assassination. I think that photograph was at least 1961 if I, I think it was 1961, that's what he told me it was, it was from. So, I mean, I, you know, they knew Lee's background 
you know, from Atsugi, Atsugi Radio Base. He was, you know, he was, he was nothing like the press painted him. He was an intelligent, especially for his age. Um, and, you know, he was at Atsugi long before he was 24 years old. So it tells you how sharp that this guy was. And to be painted the way he was in the press fit their narrative. That, it, it's really not rocket science. That was the narrative that they wanted. It's the same kind of narrative that they used for Marguerite. And for Marina, you know, I mean, imagine put yourself put yourself in Marina's shoes. Sure. She's threatened with deportation if she, you know, I mean, it's pathetic. Absolutely, we're talking. Sure. We're not talking about some uh, homeless guy that was just murdered. We're talking about the president of the United States. Right. So, uh, you know, this was planned for a while. And again, as I said, um, when Margeson turned to Howard and said, "What are you going to do now that quote unquote war is war is over?" meaning Operation Mongoose. Right. And and he turned to Dick and said, we're going to do so some, something so big, so huge, that the U.S. is going to be forced to back another invasion of Cuba. These guys were fanatical about it. Yeah, no, there's, and it's, uh, White Wolf says uh, Oswald seems to have thought he was doing legitimate undercover work. Yeah, he did. And, uh, and even apparently if he's telling his mother it's going to be okay, he's still... I somehow trusting. I don't know how he thought he was going to get out of it, but uh, I, I don't know how they talked Jack Ruby into well, shooting him. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, you know, Ruby's connections to the mob go way back sure, to his Chicago days. So they're Al Capone. again, not rocket science here. So, but yeah. you know, the key things that the key things, the two major things for me that convinced me um, of what I suspected all along. You know, again, from the time I was in sixth grade until I was in my early 20s when I met Police Chief Jesse Curry was him saying that what you saw in the early hours after the assassination is what I believed at the time. But after sitting in on the two interrogations, I'm not so sure anymore. How would Lee know that those two African-American ladies were in the lunchroom uh, if he wasn't there? Because there, believe me, there was another, not another soul in that building, but except, except for Roy Truly, the building manager. That was key to me. And especially when he told me I couldn't record that part. He made me turn off my tape recorder. And then the other thing was um, the Hathcock, one of the two partners in the private detective agency in the pawn shop, were Lauren Hall and Larry Howard pawned that rifle in golf clubs and then redeemed them the week before the assassination. And having a half-cost prints all over the inside of that rifle, it was found the day after the assassination in Daly Plaza. Right. Well, Steve, Steve, Steve Cameron brings up the... Uh, that. You can't Steve. escape from that. And there was no way that Lee Harvey Oswald... Oh, I'm sorry. The Lee Harvey Oswald was was in, in the middle of the uh, Daily Plaza behind the stockade fence. Absolutely, you can't be in two places. Well, Steve, Steve Cameron brings up the uh, he was he was there were there were people looking uh, they were using an Oswald name in 1961 to buy trucks for Cuba. He's exactly right. Yeah. They had that incident. They Absolutely, and you his name is being bandied about everywhere. And even you have a a, a memo from J Edgar Hooper. Mm -hmm. Asked saying there's concern that Oswald's uh, identity is being uh, that he's being impersonated. This is in That's 1960. Right. 19, right. And another and, other. I mean, yeah, this. and and Lee was sharp because I remember when there was this commotion about him writing to a Mr. Hunt. 
Well, everybody assumed years ago that, that he, the letter was being written to H.L. Hunt, the oil man, because they were all grabbing onto this oil man conspiracy theory, kind of like uh, the movie Executive Action that came out in 1973 with Will Gear, uh, Robert Ryan, and Burt Lancaster. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it was E. Howard Hunt that that letter was addressed to. Yes. And, and we all know E. Howard Hunt's history, and it's not very pretty. So Lee was a, he was as smart as a tack and far from the person that he was painted by the press and, of course, the uh, corporate folks that uh, wanted this to go the same narrative that uh, Dallas wanted. Absolutely. And that, and that we're getting lots of uh, questions here. But, yeah, people just need this. The, that's why I have, you know, I'm, I'm a free speech purist, but I, I really have zero tolerance for people. I don't know how long it took you. It, it took me as a teenager very, uh, maybe uh, less than a week to, to understand how deep this thing went and how what a, just reading a couple of the books, looking through the uh, hearings and exhibits and, and looking at the testimony and realizing, wow, this is this is mind boggling. And as a teenage volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry, right. we were trying to lobby Congress to reopen the thing, which became the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But right. it's really disillusioning to me because I, I was a good liberal then. And, I you know, we were talking to these local news reporters. They had no interest in this. It was, you know, year, a few years after Watergate and they had no interest. I said, well, they must really want to expose this. Nobody or couldn't even see anybody in Congress. They would just they would they had no you know, they wanted some long haired young, uh, you know, radicals to, to talk about. And uh, it's it's very disillusioning. I don't know if you had that. And you obviously a little bit different because you had, you ended up backing away purposefully. I guess probably that must have been in the at least early 80s. Yes, it was. Me, after Ed Meese told Baxter Ward, who told me and Dick Margeson that he wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I thought, I've got a, an infant son i got to protect here. If Ed Meese, the attorney general, is, is afraid to... I mean, he actually told Baxter Ward, too many people are gone, okay? I'm not touching this with a 10-foot pole. And here's he's the U.S. attorney general of the United States, and I'm thinking, I'm just a little guy. I can, be, I can disappear much faster than Ed Meese. But I, I'll tell you, the thing, the thing I remember most about um, my relationship with Marguerite was her tears, watching her cry in a, in a restaurant. Well, she'd be fine, all, you know, she'd be fine. Then all of a sudden, her eyes would well up with tears. And, and it was, and I, I, it was unavoidable because she knew why I was there. And and even though she knew that I supported her and I was on her side, just me, my presence was a reminder of what happened to her son. And, and you know, June Lee's and Rachel's father and Marina's husband, you know, uh, it, it killed her, it literally, literally killed her. And right up until the month before she passed away, on the phone with her, it was like it had, it was still just as fresh as November 22nd, 1963. Sure. And there was not, no words I used to tell her, Marguerite, there, no words, they don't exist that could comfort you. I could read from the dictionary and it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference in terms of easing your, your pain, comforting you as to what you've gone through all these years. And yeah. it was, 
it was hard. It was hard to be in that position because you knew there was nothing you could do. And I, I'll I cannot tell you, I'll bet at least 25 times in the years that I knew her, she, I would bring up Lee's children and she'd just fall apart. Um, she would just say, how can a grandmother not be able to hug her grandkids? And it just, yeah. she said they were beautiful, beautiful little babies. And it just, it would literally would, I'd have to hold back tears to try to be strong for her. Sure. And um, I'll never forget it. Not as long as I live. Well, I'll I, never forget it. well it sounds like she was, uh, first of all, just even if, he had done it. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic when I, I watch shows where you have like, a, they've interviewed the, the B2K sister, B2K killer's sister. Yeah. And you really, you know, how, or John Wayne Gacy's, you know, somebody, right. you know, people like that, or Jeffrey Dahmer's, their family. And you think, you know, how, God, that must, I mean, that, I feel so bad for those people because they didn't do anything. And they're just, they're not, well, exactly. Wise. You know, I mean, what, Tonight I'm going to be on a ABC's Nightline yes. because of the uh, Leslie Van Houten release. And I, way back in the early 80s, I started a petition drive. And over the next couple of years, we gathered over 2 million signatures to keep the Manson family in prison. I had, you know, such an involvement there. And, and yet the parents of the people that perpetrated these crimes, imagine what they went through. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, even if Lee had been involved, even yes. if Lee had pulled the trigger, yeah. How do you, how do you berate and disown and and worse yes. than that, can almost cannibalize with words the yeah. mother of this individual? Well, this, this was an elderly woman. I I don't think she was yes. quite old enough for Social Security yet, but close. And so her, her Social was, Security was a mere pittance. Yes, I don't know how she survived. Yeah, I and mean, when her washing machine broke down, I had I gathered. I gathered a collection at my office and bought her a washing machine. That's wonderful. Through That's Montgomery wonderful. Wards. But that and just shows she had no support system. What none, if she had never met you? What would she have been doing none. if she hadn't met you? She couldn't have gone to Long John Silver's, I guess. I, mean, I don't know what she would have been well, doing. I'll tell you this. She told me the first time that I went, I took her to Long John Silver's. It was the first time she'd gone out to even a McDonald's in years. You know, first of all, because she couldn't hardly afford it. And secondly, every time she did, she got horrible stares from people. Yeah. I mean, hypocrites. How would those people like to be in her shoes? Yeah. And I said, I said that to her. Don't, don't worry about these people. They have no idea what you've gone through. Yeah. No idea what you've gone through. And, and she said and, that that would be terribly unfair, even if, if she yeah. was the mother of an assassin. But the fact she was a mother of somebody who was framed for assassination framed for and it. didn't do it. Yes. Absolutely. Way and she, she had no one of the times when she was talking about Julie and Rachel, uh, she said to me, even Marina, I feel even though I don't, we don't speak, I feel horrible for her. She was his wife and she's being mistreated too. Sure. Um, so it's and and then she said, I don't want to get emotional, but she said, I worry about my granddaughters growing up and having to deal with this at school, yeah. you know, when they get out of school, what kind of a job, you know, if they're not married and they have the name Oswald, what it's going to do to them. Right. And, and she says, I can't do anything about it. And it 
literally brought her to tears. Yeah. Sorry, it, I don't mean to get emotional. No, no. It, it, I love that lady. It, it's perfectly understandable. And, I, you know, I, I, it's wonderful hearing this. It reinforces my opinion about her because I, I just look at the usual suspects who lie about everything. And they lied a lot about Marguerite. Marguerite was the first one. <clears throat> she was the first critic. So you and I <clears throat> and Mark Lane and everybody else that, that came along, Harold Weisberg, all these people were following in her footsteps. She she deserves the credit. She was, the, I think she was the first one to mention the, the, uh, the figure in the, in the doorway, the Alkins photograph. Right. I, I know she was talking about That's right. She was the very first one. Nobody even looked at the photograph. Nobody no, had even looked at it. That's my son in the doorway there. How could he be that's shooting? Right. And, and, and uh, then they I tried to pawn it off as being what's his name? Billy uh, Lovelady. Yeah, Billy Lovelady. Come and, on. And give most critically, the same clothes, the same T-shirt, yes. the yes. same overshirt. Come on, give me a break. And it it matches exactly what Lee told the the uh, yeah detective. I was on the first floor when that shooting happened, and he just like everybody else, he walked to the front of the building, like everybody you know, and nobody was in the building. Um, at the time of the shooting, except Roy Truly, Lee, and those two black ladies. That was right. it. That right. was it. So it's, it's you know, I, one day I would like um, people to know that Marguerite didn't just miss her grandkids. She, she was painted as some kind of an enemy of Marina, and she was not. In the all the years that I knew Marguerite, she never had one crossword to say about Marina. Yeah. In fact, she said, "I, I don't like being in my shoes, but I'll I'll suffer through it because this is my boy." Did, did she try to, to? Did she try to reach out to Marina? And you or, know, I didn't want to ask her. I didn't want to press her. I would let her do the leading. If she said something that I could follow up without bothering her, because again, every reporter that ever dealt with her just crucified her. I mean, they would pretend to be friends with her. And then the article article will come out just like the National Enquirer article, which is why I contacted her in the first place, back in the 70s, just they butchered her butchered her. And, and so I would only push an issue if she brought it up uh, in any sort of detail. Well, have you heard the story that story I heard that was really touching uh, that is that she I don't know if she used to do or she she went regularly or not, but she they said she used to peer into the fence and, and watch June, I think, in recess at school. She did. Distance. So you know that. She yeah. did. She told me that, too. She would watch her through the fence, through the slats. Yeah. You know, um, I think it was the slats. I don't think it was. I can't remember if it was a chain link fence now that I think about it or not. But anyway, long story short, she would sneak. It was the only way she said it's the only way I can see my granddaughter. And, you know, Rachel was so young yeah. um, at the time. Sure. And so, you know, it, it, but I mean, put yourself in, in her shoes. You know, she's being crucified because she's the mother of the so-called assassin who hasn't ever been proven to be the assassin by anybody, uh, not by the law enforcement, not by any congressional committee, and certainly not by the Warren Commission. Give right. me a break. The Warren right. Commission has had stuff in their files that never made it into the report that would have disputed uh, from left to right A to Z that Lee had that weapon in his hands. So, I mean, in all these years since I was in sixth grade, I've probably read more books, probably interviewed at least as many people, except for maybe David Lifton. I did never interview the two Navy guys that sat in on the autopsy, but he shared every bit of that with me. 
and uh, and I, and the the difference between the wounds there as they were as they were described by the Dallas doctors versus the the doctors at Bethesda to perform the autopsy, you couldn't get any any more conflicted. It, it was just pathetic. But again, getting back to Marguerite, I I was so grateful that I could offer her the little bit, I mean, tiny bit of comfort. Uh, the several times that I was actually in her presence. Well, it sounds and, like you were a great comfort to her. And that's, and, and, you know, if you I, had to come along, take the pain away. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I, I can only imagine what she went through. But it's, it's sad because she had, well, Robert, as you know, she obviously sounds like a class A jerk. So obviously oh, he wasn't he was. it. And you had, she had another son, John Pick. John, uh, I don't know. There Were there other kids between them? Did she see grandkids no. there? I mean, no, those are the only two that so the I only know. The grandkids are the ones she couldn't see. Oh, that's just, yeah, so, 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 but I mean, so what didn't, I mean, so Robert wasn't there for her. John Pick wasn't no. there for her. I mean, this woman was completely alone. In fact, like Robert was worse than not being there for her. Yeah. He, he abandoned her. I mean, he treated yeah. her just like the press did. And, yeah. and believe me, every time, every time I read something about Robert, and certainly when I had the phone conversation with him, yeah. he was yeah. jealous of his brother. He was jealous of his brother. He knew his brother was intelligence. I mean, he yeah. didn't know what branch. He didn't know if it was office in the Naval Intelligence or CIA. But he knew from just listening to Lee that he was no dummy. And for his age, my God, I mean, the way they painted him in the press and the media in general was completely opposite of what his background truly was. And all you sure. have to do is go back to Atsugi Radio Base. You don't monitor U2s. By being a moron, you don't learn Russian that fast either. That's not yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> amazing. You don't get you don't get your way back from Russia paid by the federal government unless it was planned. So come yeah. on, give me a break. I personally believe, and I shared this with Margaret, and she agreed that Lee was sent there by intelligence to see if you could in, really could infiltrate the Soviet Union. And yeah. when he wasn't able to go any further than he did. That's when they brought him back. Well, what, what I really, him. what I really respect about Marguerite Oswald and, and the White Wolf says the way she was treated is a disgrace. I obviously agree with that. Is that, and I, I've investigated so many of these things. Like for instance, uh, I once got uh, Timothy McVeigh's father on the phone briefly. Okay. And he wouldn't talk. You know, I, I just said, look, I, I think your son was a patsy. I think there was more to it than that. But he said, no, I, I just, I don't want to talk about it. He hung up. Marguerite, and it's what you find in all these cases. You can even look at the Kennedy family until JFK mm -hmm. Jr., who I believe was assassinated himself because he behind the scenes he was into it, and RFK Jr. now talking yeah, about it. The Kennedy now. family doesn't want to talk about it, and uh, and they, it's not like they have, have any relation to a criminal, but they don't want to talk about it. But the the parents of these people, I mean, the Boston bomber or people like that, uh, oh. do you, uh, you're not going to hear these people talk and they're certainly not going to come out. They never defend their child. Yeah. Marguerite no, was no. probably, Marguerite the, did. she was she the sure last did. one. She was really unique in that she not only came up, but she never backed down her. I mean, she well, could have, she could have right. been on easy street if she just published a well, book. She about, cooperated. Absolutely. Oh, she would have got, they would have, they would have found a way to make it's not your fault, Mar Marguerite. Yeah, they would have made they would have made it pleasant for her. But she had guts. She gave up security, both financial, emotional, and mental, for the rest of her life because she wouldn't back down. And you know, how many people are willing to do that in this world today? Not many. 
No, and, she, and I, she's the only one I know of. That, that, you know what good. she told me, though? She said, as bad as I feel, I'm lonely, I'm broke. Uh, people stare at me. They make comments when they see me outside. I feel worse for Marina because she was married to my son. Sure. And what they did to her, threatening her with deportation, she says, I can't imagine. She's in a foreign country. I'm in my own country, Marguerite said. I'm at least in my own backyard. Mm-hmm. And poor Marina was not. She's in a foreign country. She'd only been in a short period of time with two babies. Uh, she was just uh, sure. Rachel, Rachel, I think was a, a month old. Yeah, and so it, it's you know it's at the time of the assassination. It's the the idea that uh, and again I maybe I have tend to have empathy for people who are in bad situations. It's just uh, maybe it's the Catholic in me or whatever. But I uh, I can feel such empathy for that woman because she was totally on. It's wonderful to hear. I never knew she had a friend like you because she. I think without did she have any other friends? Did any? Was there anybody else who well, hadn't abandoned her? I asked her. I said, "What about your neighbors?" And they shunned her. Um, sure. Of course, they knew where you know they knew where she lived. I mean, they've been neighbors, you know. So um, she told me basically that she had nobody. Once in a while, if she would go to the store, somebody would not stare at her or, or make any comments under their breath. But, you know, she basically had nobody. I heard an anecdotal account that a woman tried to send her uh, food and she had it taste, taste tested first because she was afraid of being poisoned. Is that true? It is true. It is true. Wow. And I wouldn't blame her. Would you blame her? No. I, yeah, I mean, no. You got, you I'd be, be suspicious if anybody gave yeah. me anything. Yeah. You, Absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, she, when I, I said, do you want me to go out to the grocery store? And, you know, the first this is the first time I met her. Want me to go to the grocery store and, and buy some food? I'll make you some dinner. And she goes, no. And I, I didn't realize at the time what the reasoning was. She mm-hmm. wanted to go out to a restaurant where she knew the food would be good and not poisoned, you know. So, mm-hmm. but again, she warmed up to me within 15, 20 minutes. And I was frankly shocked because I, imagine being on the phone after you've flown from LAX, it's late at night and you call her from Dallas and say, I'm here. And she says, I've changed my mind. I, I, I don't think I'm going to be available to, to be interviewed. And I, I well over an hour on the phone with her, please, Marguerite, I'm on your side. Just if you give me five minutes and you want me to leave after that five minutes, I'll respect your wishes and I will never bother you again. And I said, one thing I'm never going to do to you is what the National Enquirer did to you. And she said, uh, okay, let me think about it. So the next day I called her again. She said, well, okay, okay, I'll give you five minutes. So again, within 15, 20 minutes, we were like longtime friends. And, 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 and I can't tell you, she would call me in the, during the House Select Committee hearings. And she would call me like every night. Oh, you know? I and, envy you so much. I and, would love that. And she would, she would. <laughs> She would be sometimes she'd be saying, Oh, this is a pretty good session today. And other times she would rant and rave and say, This is not true. This is not true. And she said, What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? I said, Let's wait, wait, let the committee do it. I said, These acoustics, and by the way, I was in Dallas when they did the reenactment with the acoustics people. And and she um, when they tried to discredit them and they wound up doing further evaluation 
And then it became a 95% or better possibility that at least one shot came from the grassy knoll. Right. That's when she started to feel a little more relaxed. So, yeah. Well, anyway. Like, well, it's just amazing almost. to me, especially during that era that, uh, other than Mark Lane's early connection to her as being her uh, son's attorney for, for the commission, his deceased, you know, representing his interests, supposedly, I don't know that what kind of connection she had to any of the other researchers. I, I would think if I had been a researcher back then, I would have probably wanted to try to write a book with her as the main source. Uh, but yes. no, nobody tried to do that. Did any of the critics uh, talk to her much? No, they all were out for themselves. You know, yeah. they. The one word I could describe it was sensationalism. That's what it was. And I told her, Marguerite, I just want you to know up front, I'm not going to write a book. Okay, I'm not into this, into this or interested in this for any benefit to myself. I feel horrible because I, I'm not a mother. I can't be a mother. I'm a man. But I, I can't imagine what, is, what it is like to be the mother of somebody who went through what he did in those two days. Um, and, and to be in the position you're in, be separated from your daughter-in-law, your grandchildren, and the rest of the world. And the only people that have any contact with you are trying to tear you down every five minutes. So I said, I, I'm not writing a book. I just want you to know that up front. And she says, thank you for sharing that. So, well, did she, did, she, uh, did she ever mention to you, hey, maybe we ought to write a book together? I'm surprised she didn't do that. You know, it, it's interesting. She... Um, Initially, she was even afraid to give me anything in writing with her own with her own hand, sure. um, because she'd been taken advantage of. And I, I still have to this day, I don't know which box in storage, but I still have to this day her writing her name, Marguerite, and her phone number. I, it's a little piece of paper that I kept all mm -hmm. these years. God only knows which box it's in, but because uh, <laughs> I've moved, moved a few times since then. But I have a box of stuff that's related to her, and uh, you know, maybe one day I can find that box and share it with her grandkids, if not Marina. You know, well, it, what, what do you think happened to the material that you, she was going to give you, and Robert well, Oswald denied you? Do you know what happened? I, what was in it? Do you think? You know what Robert told me? He was going to throw it out. He probably burned every stitch of it. <sighs> Honest to God, God, he was the worst. Out of all the people, and I talked to Dallas police officers. In fact. One time, I thought I was going to be arrested. I, I went down the same ramp that Jack Ruby went down, and I sneaked up to the records building, uh, records office, and I filled out a form that I wanted to get that was, you know, supposedly classified. But I filled the form out, and this lady, I can't, I think for some reason, I think her name was Sally, but I could be mistaken. It's been so long ago. I mean, we're talking decades. Mm -hmm. and, and so I waited for her to go to lunch. And then this lady comes up and says, can I help you? I said, well, no, Sally's helping me. No, no, Sally went to lunch. I said, oh, well, she's going to get this form for me. Next thing I knew, two police officers, you know, in uniform, they picked me up under my arms and they take me out the ramp and say, don't come back. And so I don't know what, I can't even remember what the form was, but apparently it was something they didn't want me to see or maybe just as simple as no you need to go through the proper channels we just don't let any tom dick or harry walk walk into here and demand files on, on stuff related to this assassination so i did i didn't go back but i was um 
I was treated better by some of those people than I was by Robert Oswald. I mean, he said, the first thing I said, excuse me, Robert, this is John Mancino. He said, I know who you are. What do you want? I said, well, your mother, I hate to bother you. I, I, I feel sad that your mother's gone, but she promised me all her files. And I'm sure she's got a note there that says, yeah, I found your, her note. You're not getting anything. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, he was horrible. He says, I... I believe my brother assassinated the president. And I said, okay, I'll respect your wishes, but I'm just telling you, you're, you are violating your mother's wishes. And if you had any love for her and respect for her, you would respect her wishes. And you, cause he saw the note, he admitted he saw the note. This mm -hmm. is for John Menzel. What, you know, what are you going to do? I, 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 I could have taken him to court, you know, but he would have destroyed the note. Well, what do you wrote. think? What, what do you think was in her files? Do you have any idea? Well, she said she had a State Department document. She never did show me, but she said it, it proved that Lee was intelligence and more than likely CIA, not Office of Naval Intelligence. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that could have been a transfer from his Navy days, uh, his, his Marine days. So, um, you know, I, I, I didn't press her. One thing I learned about Marguerite is because and I learned it very early, even, but I had a suspicion long before I even interviewed her the first time, I think it was again, 1976, that um, I'm not gonna press her. If, if, if I do, she's gonna clam up because she's already been mistreated by every reporter that ever met her in person. And I did not wanna do that. I wanted her to be comfortable enough to realize that I was a friend and I was on her side and I had no intention of writing the book. So in all the years I knew her, I said, Marguerite, don't worry, I'm not writing a book. In fact, you should write a book. And she, you know, she did basically, you know, aftermath. Um, and uh, and I, she gave me a copy of it. Um, I actually. She, she after she wrote, I, I know she, they, they wrote that horrible book about her, A Mother in History, Jean Shepard, which is, you know. No, but she wrote, it was called Aftermath. Was uh, it published? Yeah, no, it never got published. Nobody yeah. would touch it. Yeah, of so course. She was yeah, brokenhearted about that. Yeah. But um, I painted, I did not painted, I drew a picture. I should have gotten it out of the files. I drew a, a caricature picture. I, I did a picture of JFK. I drew a picture of JFK. And then in the corner, I drew a little caricature. It was not, I should say, a caricature, a, a picture of Lee and a picture of the rifle. And at the top of it, I put two victims and I showed it to her and she said, Oh, I've got to have that. John, I've got to have that. Mm -hmm. And I gave her, I quickly gave her a copy of it. And I said, I'm going to keep the original uh, in case, you know, one of us passes away, it's going to go to you. If I, mm -hmm. if, if I'm the one that passes away, it's going to be, it's going to go to you because I've had people follow me ever since I met you the first time. And I did. Yeah. I mean, really? I, I was at her house. Um, one time I spent the night and she said, here, you can sleep on Lee's old bed. <laughs> I said, whoa, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> but another time I was leaving late at night. It must've been about 11, 1130 at night. And I had a rental car and I heard the engine of a car parked down the street across the street, but the lights were out, but I could hear the car. And so I, I started the, the, uh, a rental car and I started driving away. Well, that car pulled out and started following me and it waited like two, two and a half blocks before it turns its lights on. 
that I got on the Dallas-Fort Worth Turnpike to go back to Dallas. It got off. I got back on. It got back on. And after the fourth or fifth time, I don't know if you know the, the ramps off that turnpike. Back then, you know how you have the painted V line so that you can get off a ramp? Mm-hmm. Well, in between the painted lines, there were these concrete concrete tortoises that would, you know, you'd go over those things and you knew you were not in the lane to get off the freeway or the right. turnpike. Well, I raced up to about 90 miles an hour and they tried to catch up with me and I just veered off at like 70 miles an hour, whipped off and went right over those things. I think I probably destroyed the suspension on the left side of that car, but I went around the bend and the street curved all the way around to the right and there was a hill, a big hill. So I disappeared behind the hill. They couldn't get off the ramp in time because they had to play catch up with me. Well, they got off the next one. What I did was I drove the car over the center divider, came back around and parked with my lights out underneath the overpass. They came down that next ramp and followed me around that, followed that the car I was in, thinking they were going to catch me around the corner. Well, then I went back to my hotel and there was somebody pacing back and forth um, uh, outside the hotel, um, motel. And I don't know if it was them or what, but it wasn't the first time I was followed from Marguerite's house. I mean, they just, she was treated so poorly and they were harassed her. It was just terrible. No, it really is. And get I, off on a tangent. But no, but that's, I wasn't that's, gonna let, I wasn't going to let anybody deter me. Well, it doesn't sound like, so, so it took, so Marguerite Oswald, I think, died in, uh, Early 80s, maybe? Anyway, yeah, early 81, yeah. Okay, 81, okay. So uh, so it was after that when you had the thing with me, so that's what drove you, basically drove you underground, I guess, and you, for well, fear. You... It, it, I might have been a little bit more bombastic uh, or determined had I not had an infant son, and I thought if Ed Meese, the Attorney General, is afraid of this information, then God, I'm, what could, they could make me disappear in a heartbeat. And no would ever, nobody would ever know why I disappeared. Yeah. I mean, maybe I thought about it too cynically. I don't know. But I had spent ever since sixth grade following this case and thought, I, you know, I remember the first time I watched executive action. In other sure. words, the theory was around H.L. Hunt, basically, without mm-hmm. saying so. Will Gear was supposed to be right. With H.L. Hunt. Well, anyway, when they talked about it, when the credits credits were coming across the screen and that actuary was discussed, it was done by the London Sunday Times about the people that oh, I'm so di- sorry that died um, by January 1967 sure. was scary to me, and I thought, how can you know? Brakes going out, you know, karate chops to the neck. Yes, as you go from the shower, yeah. (laughs) Scary stuff, scary stuff. So, um, yeah, so I I got a a little concerned when I had an infant son, when the attorney general said, I'm not touching this. Understandable. By the way, he he said, I'm not going to dispute any of this. He said, but too many people are dead. Already, I wouldn't touch this with a ten-foot pole. That's what Baxter Ward told me that Ed Meese said, and I assume he was telling me in detail what exactly what was said. 
That's an I incredible was, story. So, so you basically, after that, in terms of the JFK assassination, you laid low, probably maintained an interest. The Oliver Stone's movie comes out in uh, JFK in 1991. Did you have an interest in that? Um, I wasn't that, to be honest with you, there were some things that were key in that movie, but I think Oliver Stone was off base. I just, I wasn't that impressed. I was far more impressed uh, with David Lifton's book, Best Evidence, um, mm -hmm. because of things like the, the two caskets. One was a shipping casket that these Navy guys said Kennedy's body was wrapped in, you know, just like a shipping casket. And then another casket that was really ornate in another car, another vehicle, you know, stuff like that. And, and the, the other things that, that I never was able to square in my mind was, you know, what Dr. McClellan said about Kennedy's throat wound. Uh, and then the doctors of Bethesda that never knew he had a throat wound. I, I just want to, I want to, I just want to let the audience know. I heard thunder outside. So if, Oh, you say, if, if I suddenly get knocked off, that's why, because in this America 2.0, I live in one of the richest counties in the United States, but uh, we lose power very easily because we're a banana republic. So so just let you know, in case suddenly I'm gone, that's why. They didn't come and get me. There's a thunderstorm. So I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, uh, you. so Oliver Stone's movie didn't really reunite your interest. So what you ended up... Uh, you and Steve Cameron ended up in that. I, it sounds like this is the first time you really talked about this in a long time. Is that right? Well, not exactly. I stayed friends with David Lifton uh, okay. for a long time. In fact, shortly before he passed away, I was in the middle of a move, physical move. Um, my wife had passed away, and um, I was in, a phys in the middle of a physical move. And um, he asked me, to take control of his files that were in, um, because I was moving to Orange County and, and uh, he had his files, everything that he had was locked up in a storage unit. And at the time I couldn't do it, um, but I said, just give me a couple months and he passed away. And I wonder why I never heard back from him. And I think that Steve found me um, by my trying to track down why David did not get back to me. I sent yeah. him emails and, and he had responded to one, but shortly thereafter passed away. And I hadn't realized because he did not look 83 years old. And I thought, oh my God, I look older than he does. <laughs> right? I, how, how did I get screwed like this? But anyway, so, um, um, so, um, so I ne never got those files and I went online to try to track down maybe a family member of David's so I could, so I could find out where those files were because if you said anything happened to him, he wanted me to have them uh, so that I could continue to push this, this effort um, because he didn't believe Oswald shot Kennedy either. And, and while he might've suspected before I met him in, in the seventies that Lee may have played some role once he talked to me, he thought that Lee had nothing to do with it and that Lee was set up. Yes, absolutely. There are just too many things that didn't jive, like the photograph in the Florida Keys, Oswald's background in, the, in radio uh, at Atsugi, uh, the, the impersonators, you know, even yes. the one, even the impersonator at the gun uh, 
uh, range, firing range. Yes. You know, said his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, yeah. why would you oh, say... Oh, they were shooting at that Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> why would you say Lee Harvey Oswald instead of just Lee Oswald? Exactly. And that was everywhere. So, and then, of course, when I shared with him what Jesse Curry, the police chief, said about sitting in on these interrogations, and from that... I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, the first thing out of Jesse Curry's mouth was, turn your tape recorder off. Yeah. I said, yes, sir, whatever you want. So that's when he said, the day, he says, I'm sure, you know, as interested in this case as you are, you saw my words when I was first interviewed. I believe we had the right man. Yes. He says, I don't believe that anymore. So, but I will never never go on television, I will never go on radio, and you will never see me quote be quoted in the newspaper. Well, well yeah, I said to you. I think I told you this in private, Gerald Salente, uh, <laughs> who I admire very much, he claimed the same thing about John Connolly, that in private, John Connolly told him when he was a young guy, yeah, of course there was a conspiracy. But so these, it's amazing. These are powerful people that are scared. So uh, it's amazing that any of us talk about it. And, and again, why would any of us be scared of this? Why would anybody be scared of this? If poor little minimum wage loser Marxist Lee Harvey Oswald had done the assassination, what what national security is exactly. involved there? Exactly. And if you look I, again, I'll never forget. It's etched into my mind. Here I am. I'm a sixth grader, twelve years old. You know, at like eleven years old, almost twelve years old. And Lee is before the press for the first time, and he's as calm and collected as we are right now. Yeah, I mean. As an 11, 12-year-old, I'm thinking, how could this guy have just shot the president? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And not only defiant, he was also defiant he, uh, and competent. Um, so he knew something was up. And, and quite frankly, when he told his mother, leave it alone, everything's going to be okay, to me, that rings true that he knew he was set up. Absolutely. Do you, see the, do you see Harlan Stone was another question on there. It says, have you, have you ever seen the documentary JFK to 9-11? Everything is a rich man's trick. It was, a big, it was very go. popular on the Internet for a while. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm have telling you, you um, he was set up. I think he was set up as early as 61. And maybe I don't know. If it, well, they were talking about him back then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And he was a perfect guy. The perfect patsy, as they said in executive action, because, um, you know, here our federal government sends him, and I'm convinced of that, sends him to Russia to see if he can infiltrate the Soviet Union, pays his way back uh, after it looks as though he's not going to be as successful as they had hoped, uh, was allowed to bring a Russian-born wife back with him and pay his way. I mean, and then nobody is there to greet him. Right. Come on. If that if somebody came back from Russia today, the entire media and the, the height FBI, of the Cold War, the CIA the Cold War. Yeah. would be all over that airline. Height of the like Cold the War. He brings her, he brings a Russian bride too. I mean, yeah. they, and they, they nobody fed it in. Nobody. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's like you have to be literally delusional to not recognize this stuff. Yeah, it, it's just you know. And, and I'll tell you, Bob Schieffer, you mentioned him. Yeah. Marguerite had nothing nice to say about Bob Schieffer. Yeah, talk about that, because uh, Doug, Doug Waters well, has got the question on there. They went to the same school. Lee and, oh. and Schieffer went to the same school at one time. Yeah. And, and 
he had nothing nice to say about Lee. Um, and, you know, she didn't go into any real detail. Um, so I, I didn't push the issue. Well, but I, she, I find the whole body. See, I, I look at these things and I I don't necessarily accept anything is true. The story is that she had to give Marguerite and Oswald a ride to the police station because uh, Marguerite called the newspaper office to ask for a ride. I mean, wh wh why would you call a newspaper office that? that the whole story kind of is a little bit silly to me. I mean, why, why would you call the police, I mean, the, the newspaper? I don't understand that. And of course, he just happens to be the one. And he happens to be the guy who starts, is the originator of most of this anti-Marguerite stuff because he's, he exactly. just, it's, exactly. yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he thinks she's an awful woman. She's uh, loud and obnoxious and she's complaining uh, about, uh, you know, not getting attention and, and uh, she's uh, cheap and wants, is a money grubber. I mean, all that comes from, I think, initially from Schieffer. Yeah, it, it started with him. It, frankly, it started with him. And, and um, Bob Schieffer was all about Bob Schieffer. Let's face it, you know, um, I mean, even in years that passed, you could see it. He was, he had just a high and mighty opinion of himself. Sure. He was only interested in his stature and how he could reach another higher stature. I mean, was, I, I don't even care to talk about Bob Schieffer. It, it's a waste of time. Um, although I didn't like the way he treated Marguerite. Oh, that must be. So what, what did, uh, before we go into anything else, what did, did, what else did Marguerite have to see? Have any other choice tidbits about any other people that we might know of either in the media or, uh, well, you know, it's, or anybody? it's interesting because, um, I mentioned to her, uh, I had already met her a few times before, but I mentioned to her my conversation with police chief jesse curry mm -hmm. and she said you know um if you can find a way to twist his arm and say what he said to you either on tape whether it's audio video or you know newspaper even this will help clean my son's record and that's all i care about anymore i don't care that i'm destitute i don't care that i have to fight for every meal that i put in my mouth I don't care what people think about me, except for my my grandchildren, and uh, and she never badmouthed Robert to me. But I'll tell you, she was not happy with his his attitude about Lee, sure. and she quite frankly told me that Robert was jealous of Lee, and mm. but but she never had a crossword seriously cross, serious crossword to say about anybody. She said, all I care about is clearing my son's name. If I have to live this way the rest of my life, I'm fine with it. I don't care if people stare at me. I don't care if they mumble under their breath. I don't care if they come up and accuse me of being a rotten mother. Mm -hmm. Just let me have the opportunity before I pass this world to clear my son's name so that his wife will know the truth. So... You know, I, I yeah. thought. Well, it's it's. Margaret, a, I'll she do whatever should, I can. She shouldn't have to do this. It's an uphill battle. Well, well, we're doing it now, and and he, uh, you know, we're trying to because, uh, you know, Marina's still alive, her children obviously, and uh, you know, it's, it's just unfair for somebody to to live. Uh, I don't think it's fair the sins of the father being visited upon the son, even one of the real sins. In this case, uh, there's a huge story there, and I. Uh, 
I hope, you know, that, that, that uh, the family eventually gets to have that, uh, that weight lifted from them because it, it, it isn't, he, he was, it, I don't know that he was a hero like Jim Garrison said that may be, and I, I believe Marguerite made some kind of comment to that effect early on as well. Uh, but, she did, but, but, yeah. but when, I, when I asked her about it, she said, I didn't mean it in the literal sense that the, everybody ran with that ball. Yeah. The fact that he stood up for himself is what she was talking about. The fact that he was not going to let them railroad him in the media sure. and convict him of something before he hadn't even had an attorney at his side. That's what she was referring to. And she yeah. got all irate and said, you know, they ran with that ball as though uh, they were running for a touchdown in, in, in Dallas Stadium. She goes, it just really upset me. Because they mince every word I say. They twist everything I say. I said, Marguerite, don't say anything to him anymore. You've you got to learn to trust people. When you find somebody you can trust, only speak to them. But, um, you know, I don't know who's always going to see this. Um, I, I reread an interview that um, Rachel gave around a year ago. I think it was July of last year. Um, and I would love to be able to share what Marguerite was like to um, to her kids. I know that June Lee, from what I've read, doesn't isn't interested in talking about this. And quite frankly, I completely 100% understand. I would never want to be in her shoes. Sure. Nor would I want to be in Rachel's or Marina's. I mean, look at how they have been treated ever since 1963. You know, that's a long time and, entire lives. and I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, worst enemy, much less this family who was uh, completely destroyed. And how I, I tell you, everything I've read about Rachel, uh, I haven't read much about June Lee, but everything I've read about Rachel, she's held her head high and done done a great job with her life. And and Marina, I, I know she doesn't believe that Lee shot Kennedy. And I'm glad that she recognizes that. And it did, you know, as soon as evidence, real evidence started to come out, facts started coming out, uh, not just Marina, but the whole rest of the world began to think, okay, well, these conspiracy theories have been, been simmering for the last couple of years, aren't just right. simmering, they're, they're real. Right. And there's been all kinds of theories and stuff. And quite frankly, I don't claim to be a genius or a great researcher. Some of this fell in my lap. If if I hadn't had that relationship with Marguerite, I wouldn't have been interviewed by the news media, and that pub, that article wouldn't have been published, and that guy Dick Margerson wouldn't have contacted me. That wouldn't have led to Baxter Ward and Ed Meese. But I'm telling you, if I want, if I was asked to give one line opinion, I would just say this. Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing, zero, to do with Kennedy's assassination and that he was set up from day one. Um, yeah. And quite frankly, he knew it. He knew it, and that's why he had that conversation with his mother that night in the Dallas jail. He knew it. Sure. Well, I think he must have. It must have done that. It must have been a horrible feeling to realize you put two and two together. Brother, the people that the people that you that set you up were supposed to be your friends, your employers. He thought he was, yeah. He thought he was. He thought he was reporting back to them on on he, these people that were trying to do this. Exactly. He thought he's doing a good thing, and and they all they were doing was setting him up for the big fall. And how do you yeah. 
get set up for a bigger fall than assassinating the most powerful leader on the planet Earth and his poor family. You know, not just Marguerite, but think what Marina had to go through before she remarried. Just think what she had to go through. Two small children, one's a baby, um, being threatened with deportation if she doesn't. I mean, sure. I'll tell you, I mean, the fact that she remained in Texas and didn't let people, especially once she learned the facts as they truly came out, um, didn't let people do what they could have done otherwise to her. I give her credit. Oh, that's it's pretty amazing. And and, more credit than I think I might have deserved. Well, I think you picture how she was. uh, She was I don't know how much younger she was than Oswald, but she was Lee. But she was very young, young mother and uh, is learning English. She's in a country and now she's got the onus of, you know, your 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 husband performed the the worst act in the 20th century. He's the biggest villain. So, again, she's and. She may not have really known. I don't know what to, to what extent she knew about uh, Lee's intelligence work. A lot of it was well, probably unknown to her. Lee, according to his mom, anyway, um, you know he he held his cards close to the vest. He was mm-hmm. he was not just born uh, uh, a year before he passed away. I mean, he was intelligent. He held his cards close to his vest. He was an intelligent guy and much far more intelligent than I was at 24 years old. I'll tell you that much. And and even his career started much before 24 uh, years old. So to to do what he did at Sugi Radio Base, based what he did in the Marine Corps, how how he presented himself in interviews following those uh, periods of his life. I mean, I couldn't speak like that when I was his age. So, I mean, it's and to see his entire family basically destroyed, you know. And like you said, even if he had assassinated Kennedy, how do you uh, allow yourself to torture the family that had would have had nothing to do with it? But again, like I said. I mean, everything, and I spent a long time on this, and I I have no doubts whatsoever that Lee Oswald had nothing to do with Kennedy's assassination. Absolutely. That he was set up. That's very, one, I mean, I, I'm i a free speech purist, and I, I will, I, I'll defend anybody's right today, the, the right to want to say that Oswald did it, but it's, it really, it's, of all these cases, and they're all, uh, you know, that I write about, uh, this, this is one of the easiest to realize early on that, Wow, this is such, you know, the zigzagging bullet, the magic bullet. And, and, oh, and when I was a, when well, I was you know, a, Conley, like you said, John Conley, he never believed that Kennedy. I mean, no, he even seeing the Zapruder film, they had time to turn one way, turn, sure, it, turn the other sure. way. How could that bullet have gone through Kenny and into him? Come on, give me a break. right. But it's but at some point, you know, or and this is uh, goes with anything, or you know, we we. We need to have, uh, you know, profiles and courage out there, as JFK was yeah. saying. But I mean, Connolly should have been courageous enough to say that in public. Uh, well, Ed, yeah. Ed Meese should have run with it, and Reagan should have talked about it. If he was really obsessed about it, why wasn't he talking about it in speeches? Well, I think, and I can only speculate that I think Reagan was protecting his image, is what it was. Um, imagine if the President of the United States comes out and says. Lee Harvey Oswald did not shoot President Kennedy. What would that would might have done to his career? Well, I mean, even, I, I give him credit for for 
his position, but to not speak about it, it's like me, you know, I only when I had a baby, an innocent infant, did sure. I did I feel um, encouraged to sort of back off a little bit, let things rest for a while. But, you know, before that, I was, like I said, picked up by the Dallas police officers, carted out of the jail. Uh, well, I can numerous times. I, I, well, that's that's unbelievable. But I I can tell you that um, Roger Stone, uh, when he my my first nonfiction book, Hidden History, uh, he I, I didn't know who he was really. He really hadn't burst on the scene yet with Trump and everything. And he contacted me and told me how much he loved Hidden History. And uh, I thought I, I associate I knew he was associated with Nixon in some way, and he'd written a book about LBJ being behind the JFK assassination. So I was flattered and. Uh, then he, you know, he, he, you know, Trump announces for president and then he calls me and I talked to him on the phone and he, he said how he'd been Trump's uh, great friend for 30 years. And uh, he started telling me, you're going to love this guy. You're going to love Trump. He knows about all the conspiracies, JFK and all this stuff. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, Roger, you know, is, is this possible behind the scenes? So apparently Trump was another one because when Trump became president, he was asked at a press conference who killed JFK, and he said he said Oswald did it. I know from Roger Stone that he absolutely didn't think that. He didn't believe that. No, he didn't believe that at all. But again, just like Reagan, he had an image to protect. And look at all the people that have been berated. And I don't mean just Marguerite or Marina or God only knows what Lee, June Lee and Rachel had to go through. I can only imagine. But, yeah. you know, it's... You know, you got the Reagan's a president. Trump became president. You know, that could devastate their careers. And I, I mean, I'm the kind of guy that I wouldn't care. I don't care if it does, devastates my career or not. No, at some point, at some point, I had an infant son. But I'm telling you, um, today, I mean, and then, you know, the 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 accidental meeting of Dick Margeson because uh, of my interview about my relationship with Marguerite was purely accidental. It had nothing to do with me being some sharp researcher. I mean, I, the first book I read was Mark Lane's and right, right away, I thought, you know, everything I remember from watching them parade Lee out that first night before the press is true. It, they yeah. railroaded this guy. And at the time I had no idea how far back it went. Probably went to the late fifties right. in reality because of his background. He was a perfect patsy. Sure. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't care what it does to my career or it does to my life. Right is right, wrong is wrong. And you got a family, not just Marguerite, but his wife, his two daughters, their lives have been just uprooted and destroyed. And, and you know, to read, I don't know much about June Lee, but just that one article reading about what Rachel's done with her life, God bless her. You know, yeah. I don't know that I'd have the I'd have had the strength to go through what they did. You know, people peering through school fences. You know, I I just can't imagine that I I mean I now at my age now I I'd stand up to it. But if I was at her age when she went, you know, experienced well, that, she was she was an infant. Yeah, I mean she she had no you know she, exactly. And so, again, yeah. like you said. I'm repeating myself, so I apologize. Even if Lee had done it, how is that Rachel's fault? How is that Marina's fault? How is June Lee's fault? It, it's, right. it's, 
or margarines for that matter. It's just mind-boggling. People are evil. They're, I don't care what anybody says. There's a lot of good people on this planet, but there is evil. It does exist. There, people people are lacking empathy, uh, and you see it all the time. You just, nobody puts themselves in uh, somebody else's shoes. And understand, like, for instance, I, I remember just re, you know, looking at an interview with a, uh, that B2K's killer's a sister and yeah. people like, I, I just, I really feel for those people because again, just, just imagine how horrible they feel that what they're going through, that this is a stigma. A lot of them have to change their name. I know in the case of Timothy McVeigh, his yeah. sister was a very sweet girl, yeah. a school teacher. We tracked her down. She had changed her name. She wouldn't answer us, but, uh, She's, you know, that's terrible. You have to change your name because, you know, I wish more people would be like Marguerite and come out because his sister, his father, if they, I know if something, if my father was accused or my son was accused, something like that, I would take the time like Absolutely. Marguerite did to figure out, okay, and Absolutely. see. She was the and first one. She was the first None of these other relatives do. She's, she don't. really stands Well, alive. I can tell you this. That's not quite true. And I'll tell you what happened. In 1981, I was reading an old L.A. Herald Examiner. They had an area column. It was just short you know, stories. And it talked about the pending parole of Sirhan Sirhan, who assassinated Robert Kennedy. Right. And so I called the parole board because I told my buddy Mike Groff, I said, look, I don't, I don't think this is a parole hearing. I think they granted him release. Come to find out the parole board granted Sirhan Sirhan a parole date off in the future, the very first parole hearing. They wanted them out of the country. Right. They figured you go back to Jordan. And I thought, this is insane. So I drafted a petition, and me and four of my friends saw, sat on college campuses after work, eight, 10-hour days, and on shopping malls on the weekends, and we collected, collected in a month 12,000 signatures. It eventually grew to 25,000 to keep Sir Hans in prison by having his parole date rescinded. Same thing with the onion field. Well, let, let, well, let's clarify that. You know, you you understand the truth about the RFK assassination. You wanted to keep him in prison so he wouldn't flee the country and we might learn the truth, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean I don't personally I don't personally believe that the Sir Hans or Hand fired the fatal bullet. Right. I believe it was Thane Eugene Caesar, like a lot of other people do. Including Robert F. Kennedy. Including the coroner. That's yeah. right. Thomas Noguchi. But anyway, that led to the Onionfield case. We, we kept him in prison. We had his parole date rescinded. And the families of those um, killers, I mean, I feel badly for them just like you do Marguerite and Marina and June Lee and Rachel and anybody else that has to go through that. They had nothing to do with it, nothing whatsoever to do with it. And, you know, even uh, Charles Tex Watson's family, how do you hold them accountable? Yeah, exactly. It's it's just what must they feel yeah anyway that's the only reason i brought up that that those issues no it's fat well it's it, it, it's really that the oswald family had to go through well it's you know it's again it's more more you study about marguerite you realize how uh unique she was and so i'm glad you're standing up for uh i'm i'm gonna be i've had some good stuff about her in my upcoming book but I, i'm sure you'll have more and again before we go on another subject i want to because i want to talk about what you're going to be Are you still there? You're paused.
Well, uh, I guess, uh, Don, you're frozen. Um, uh, last night, I was uh, at ABC Studios um, and uh, with uh, Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah. And so we were taping a broadcast of, uh, of the, over the Leslie Van Houten uh, parole that happened earlier this week. It's going to air tonight on ABC's Nightline at 1230 in the morning Pacific time. And um, you know, back after I'd had successful efforts to, to have the parole dates rescinded for convicted assassins or hands for hand, an onion field murder, murder of Gregory Ulysses Powell, then Sharon Tate's mother Doris came to me. And uh, over the next uh, several months, we gathered 80,000 letters and just thousands of petition signatures to keep uh, all of the Manson family in prison. There had been 600 letters, I believe, uh, from individuals across the country requesting that Leslie Van Houten be released. This is back in 1982. So I drafted a petition. Uh, it went all over the country. Eventually, uh, we even got petitions signed by people outside the United States. And we submitted these hundreds of thousands of uh, petitions and 80,000 letters to the parole board uh, to keep Leslie Van Houten behind bars. And here, as you well know, earlier this week, she was released. So in the... Uh, ensuing days uh, beyond her release, my point has been you don't release somebody that's capable of carving up people, and I know this is graphic, but people need to hear it the way it is, carving people up, innocent human beings like their Thanksgiving Day turkeys, and not expect that your mentality is permanently suspect. And that's what we always forget about even criminal trials. People are called suspects for a reason. They're not innocent, nor are they guilty. They're suspect. So when somebody commits a crime as horrendous and heinous as Leslie Van Houten committed, that person, in my mind, is permanently suspect. If she's rehabilitated, good for her. Let her stay rehabilitated behind bars where we know as the public that we are protected because nobody short of God himself, can, unless he were to come down on this earth, uh, convince me that somebody that committed crimes like that is 100% rehabilitated. That's my opinion, and um, that's the way I will always feel. These people are permanently suspect. So that's going to be on tonight on ABC's Nightline. Um, 12.30 in the morning Pacific time. Um, and it was quite an experience. I mean, to uh, work with Doris Tate, Sharon's mother, and then briefly with her sister, with uh, her daughter, Patty, and then also uh, staying friends and working all these years with Deborah, uh, who by far is a fiery person compared to her mother and her sister, Patty. She is one uh, lady with a lot of guts and shouldn't have to do the work of government, which is to, and government's most important function is that of protecting its citizens. So that's, uh, that's what's happened to me this week. Tony, thanks for j j jumping in. I'm glad. Thanks for Steve Cameron for uh, 
and our, I, I won't go into too much of a rant, but again, we are living in a banana Republic and uh, all our power lines are underground here. It's ridiculous. We should lose power, but I, it was just a, a brief little blip, but it was enough to take, uh, take me offline. So I apologize for the interruption. Thanks for coming in, Tony. Yeah. So we were, so you're going to be on Nightline, ABC Nightline tonight, which is yeah. uh, very amazing. Like I said, With Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, mm-hmm. um, and you know, not, quite rightly, they spent most of their time on Deborah, uh, but not just because she was a sister, but because she's sharp. And so once they heard her for five minutes or so, they knew this lady's on the ball. So how how did you become? How did you get to meet Sharon Tate's sister? How how did that happen? Well, actually, what happened was in 1981, um, as I started to say during the break, um, I drafted a petition to keep Sirhan Sirhan in prison because he was granted a parole date. He was supposed to be released on September 1st, 1984, and took the petitions and thousands of letters to the parole board. We actually became good friends with the vice chairman at the parole, of the parole board at the time, Bob Roos, who became eventually the chairman. And he just passed away a little more than a year ago. Good, good friend. And he and I were on several television programs together, network television programs after that. But that caused um, the daughter of the slain police officer, Ian Campbell, from the Onionfield case to call me and ask for help because Jimmy Lee Smith was going to be released within days. And Jimmy Lee Smith was Gregory Euless Powell's accomplice in the Onionfield case um, where her father, Ian Campbell, was murdered. So we drafted a petition. We, I, because he was a police officer, her father, I hit every police station and sheriff station across California. And within three and a half weeks, Valerie Campbell and I collected 31,500 signatures to keep, to have, have Gregory Powell's parole date rescinded. And we didn't get it done in time to do, to keep his uh, accomplice, Jimmy Smith, in prison. But Gregory Powell is the one that killed her father. He's the one that fired, fired the bullet. And, uh, and so we were successful there, except that his attorney filed a lawsuit against the parole board and us, because at the time, the parole, uh, parole could not be rescinded, excuse me, solely due to public outcry, and which our petitions and letters were. So, excuse me, my throat is dry. And, uh, and so then uh, Solano County Superior Court Judge Ellis Randall ruled that he needed to be released in seven days because public outcry cannot be the sole reason to rescind a poll date. So we had to go to the First District Court of Appeals in San Francisco to get it overturned. It was overturned, went to the California Supreme Court. We prevailed there, and Gregory Ulyss Powell died in prison. But again, <clears throat> Deborah Tate, Patty Tate, Doris Tate, Valerie Campbell should not have to do the work of government. These are family members who went through holy hell, okay, over these, I mean, vicious crimes. So to force them to, because government wasn't doing its job, they weren't protecting the population. The year I was born, 1952, there were 260 homicides in the whole state of California. The year I got involved with criminal justice work, 1980, there were 3,411. That's more than 1,300% increase in the population in, in, in murders. Our population didn't go up 1,300%. It's, it's insane. We're, yeah. Government is not performing its most important function of protecting citizens. 
Felix Carabella's uh, Tex Watson wasn't released, was he? No, Tex Watson wasn't yeah, released. But say, okay. he tried to. He I mean, he gets parole hearings, just like all the other men. Well, he's discovered God, right? I believe that's what he said. Yeah, in prison. Well, yeah. that's fine. Let him do God's work from behind bars, where yeah. we know absolutely that he can't harm anyone else. Yeah. No, absolutely. He was, and he, you know, really. It's when people talk about the Manson murders, uh, Manson wasn't at the scene of either murder. So really the, the one, Tex right. Watson and Susan Atkins should be the names that are burned in people's minds. They're the ones who actually did the incredibly vicious uh, murders, stabbing. Well, Leslie, and Leslie Van Houten, who we just released, she yeah. carved, up, carved up the LaBiancas like they were Thanksgiving Day turkeys. Come on, give me a, what kind of mentality perpetrates a crime like that? and is trusted in society. I don't care how many years go by, how many therapy sessions, nobody short of God knows that that person is completely rehabilitated. Nobody. Right. So to, to release somebody like that is tantamount to conducting an experiment in our cities and neighborhoods and using us as guinea pigs. Right, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's right you're passionate about uh, at that as well. So what what are your, your are you, are you going to write? Because, you know, you've had a fascinating life. And I, like I said, it's amazing that you, you've met these people and you've done these things. And I haven't heard about you. And I, I don't know how many too many people have either. I, I don't know how you could manage to meet these people. And somehow you've, you've until Steve Cameron found you. So he's got, uh, you know, he's got some superpowers or you found him. Who found who there? I it's, think he found me when I was trying to find out what how, why David Lifton never got back to me. I know he was. Yeah. He had moved to uh, Nevada, and he was in dire straits at the time. He was waiting for another advance from the book publisher for his sequel. Of which that's one of the reasons I wanted to. When I found out he had passed away, yeah, because he didn't answer my my calls back in in December, right before he passed away. So I wanted to track him down because I'm in his book, his sequel. Hmm because of all the stuff we've been discussing this well, we, we've heard there there's supposedly a young guy that might have uh, i think steve knows his name that thinks maybe he has his but i mean it's he david was talking about that book for 20 years or something he, oh, he kept know, saying yeah. it's going to be published it's going to be published and it it never was and uh, I, I i hope that it's and then supposedly his computer crashed and he lost i mean it has to be somewhere right i mean somebody well, yeah. has and he had asked me shortly before he passed away, if I could take over his storage unit. Uh, he was in dire straits financially, couldn't afford yeah. it. And un unfortunately, and I was in the middle of a move. It wasn't good timing. And so when I finally got back to him, I didn't get a response. And so I didn't find out why until recently. And I think that's how Steve Cameron found me was because I was looking for David Lifton. Um, but you know, he had in South Orange County, California, he had all his files in a storage unit. And he was just basically freaking out that they were going to be lost or that whoever owned this, whoever owned the storage unit was going to toss all that stuff. Yeah. And it was stuff that he accumulated over 20 years. So uh, I think that's how Steve found me um, because I was trying to find what happened to David. And and so it's it's. It's unfortunate. I mean, I didn't realize he was 83 years old. He looked younger than I do. So <laughs> I got the raw end of that deal. But but anyway, uh, he was a sharp guy. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure about everything that he ever told me. 
Um, when I shared with him what uh, Police Chief Jesse Curry told me, he wasn't certain about that. When I shared with him what, what he was sure about, and he put it, he said he put it in his book, uh, in the pages of that manuscript, what Marguerite shared with me about her conversation with Lee in that Dallas jail mm -hmm. that night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, that is going to be explosive. Because nobody, she didn't tell anybody. I asked her, "Have you?" No, I mean, you've got a bombshell there. That's why I, I, you know, I asked anybody this. Because every time I tell somebody anything close to the best stuff like this, they they run the ball the other way. They're all out to get me, and they're 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 going by the same narrative that was created the day that Kennedy was assassinated. So she said, "You're the only one, and please do not share this anybody else with anybody else." until either you have a book or a movie with people that are going to back you. And I said, Marguerite, I'm not writing a book. I'm not interested in a movie. Uh, I'm just interested in the truth. I want you to have your son's name cleared. I don't want Marina or June Lee or Rachel to go through this the rest of their lives. And they will if the truth doesn't come out. And that's not right. Even if Lee had committed the assassination, it's not right to hold the family accountable. But I know he didn't kill Kennedy, and I know for a fact he didn't have anything to do with that assassination. And I'm convinced that those two individuals, the Parmet rifle and then redeemed it, assassinated Kennedy. And they were seen running from behind that stockade fence by a police officer. They got in that Rambler station wagon and took off. And I'm convinced that that Rambler station wa wagon belonged to Larry Howard's mother, just like wow. Baxter Ward said it did. Yeah, that, well, that's again, that's fantastic. And I, I nobody I, has been told that except for Ed Meese. You're the first one. I well, and, and I, I'm very honored. I just, I just hope you haven't given away too much because I want you to have your own book or for Steve well, Cameron. Because Steve, I know, I know it's going to be in uh, frame up the conspiracy. Well, I, if, yeah, if it's in somebody else, to falsely incriminate Lee Army Oswald, which is that, uh, Steve that's fine. I just want it to come out before. You know, I turned 70 my last birthday, and I'm no spring chicken anymore. But before I leave this earth, I want Lee's family to know the truth. And, you know, I, 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 I mean, I can't even imagine what Marina went through, being threatened to go back to be deported. But, but not only deported, but deported to the Soviet Union of all places. She would yeah. have disappeared. She would have literally disappeared. And with two children, an infant... You know, I mean, I can't even imagine what she went through, but those children of hers, what they had to go through growing up is despicable, absolutely despicable. So my goal in life is to clear that that name, Lee Harvey Oswald, so that those family members don't have to live with this the rest of their lives. Well, that they seems to that seems to be one of my undeclared goals as well, because I certainly keep going back to it. It's my wheelhouse issue. And. Uh, so I know some people on the country another Kennedy assassination show because I, I know, you know it gets monotonous. You're right, yeah, but I mean it's it's it really is the start, uh, at least for the modern era for baby boomers and everything. That was our 9/11, and uh, that's you know that's that was a triggering thing. And I think that it's not hyperbole to say that. Uh, America lost its innocence on November 22nd, 1963. If you do, I said before, if you had a graph showing, uh, charting America, American influence around the world, cultural, uh, cultural and economic dominance at home, 
everything. Uh, I, I believe that we probably reached our peak on November 22nd, 1968. Oh, we, we were at the apex. Absolutely. The country yeah. has deteriorated slowly, yeah. but surely ever it's since. Downward, ever since a downward. I'm not the first one to say this, but we lost our innocence. Yes. yes. Whoever I'm plagiarizing, I apologize. But it's but true. We lost our innocence as a country. If, if he and had not been, yeah, if he had been, first of all, key pieces of evidence. What Jesse Curry told me, the police chief, when he forced me to turn my tape recorder off, that shows you even Jesse Curry was afraid. Yeah. He wouldn't say that on, on tape. Yeah. But he, said, he says, look, I'm, I'm getting up there in years, but I've got a wife. You know, right. I've got a family. I don't need this. He says, look at all the people that were directly or indirectly involved that have been gone. Look at the ones right. that were gone just in, by January of 1967. He says, I can't do that to my family. So, but you know, I mean, look what happened to uh, the police officer that that's that saw Howard and um, and uh, Hall. I'm convinced it was them. Uh, Roger Craig. Yes. You know, Steve Cameron I mean, knows all about him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> look what happened to him? Sure. I mean, it's it's. Uh, but I'll tell you, when I was down there in Dallas, in Daly Plaza, when they did the reenactment, you didn't have to be a rocket science to know that those people on the grassy knoll weren't weren't mistaken. They heard shots from over their head from that grassy knoll behind that stockade fence. And those two guys, I'm convinced, were Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. And nobody, including Ed Meese, is going to get me to say otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, we can, it's, the fact that we're still talking about it and speculating about it all these years later is because the crime the crime was never investigated. And I try to tell that to people all the time. The Warren the Warren report was just a rehash of the FBI report, and uh, they added in the, the nonsense about the single bullet theory to explain James Tag the missed shot. But you know, it's just if you read this thing, as Penn Jones said a long time ago, the only way to believe the Warren report is to not read it. Oh yeah, and, and <laughs> but you know the. the they uh back in those days we didn't have the investigative sources we have today um and not only that but the narrative was given the very day the assassination happened and i think that edict came from lyndon johnson find a way to shut this down as quickly as you can uh i think frankly i think a part of johnson if not a big part of him i think he feared the soviet union had something to do with it and he kind of hinted, hinted so in 1973. He, he, he was convinced that it wasn't all that came out in the Warren Report. And, you know, he, uh, he would never have said that before then. But uh, it's an injustice that wasn't just done to Kennedy or the Kennedy family or the Oswald's fam, Oswald and himself, himself and his family. It was an injustice to the entire country and, frankly, the world. Sure. Because we did lose our innocence. And people don't trust anything the government. Ever since the Warren Report came out, the public doesn't trust the government, period, on anything. They take everything the government says with a grain of salt. That's pretty pathetic when we're the most powerful nation on earth. We, we don't we don't have any idea what would have happened if Kennedy wasn't assassinated. But I do know that RFK wouldn't have been assassinated, probably not MLK. Uh, the you would not have had the same kind of riots in, in the Vietnam War. We know JFK was in process of well, he already wanted to bring all withdrawing the by yeah. January 1965. Right, right, right. So we, that's already in there. We know the National Security Action Memorandum 263. We know that. 
So we don't, everything would have been different. I don't, I don't know that you would have had the counterculture in the 60s. I think it would have been different because you would have had a different person leading the country. And I think even something like reaction to the Civil Rights Act would have been different under Kennedy. That oh, wasn't just Because I know as a little kid, uh, just the, it was such a, a culture shock going from this handsome movie star guy that was yeah. very articulate and educated to this crude Texan who, who couldn't, you know, who couldn't get out yeah. of his own way and he couldn't oh, speak. Yeah. That was all, that was just, you know, really people, I think, just like, whoa, this is such a huge He difference. was a ruthless guy. There was no question about it. And he had a hatred for Kennedy and a bigger hatred for Bobby Kennedy. Um, oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's, uh, and I got to give you Bobby credit. Kennedy credit. He, he uh, was pressed and pressed and pressed to run for president but long before he did. And yeah. I think he only bowed to it because he didn't want any more soldiers to die in Vietnam. It was, it Absolutely. was just, you know, and uh, I worked for him when I was in high school in 1968, handing yeah. out literature, yeah. mm -hmm. banks. And I, I, you know, he said things then that if a Democrat said today, they couldn't, they couldn't win offices. Dog oh, of course not. No. You know, he was not in favor of welfare programs. He was in favor of jobs. One of his, in fact, one of his talking points on paper at the top said big bold letters, jobs, jobs, jobs. We don't want entitlement programs. We want people to be able to work. We're the most powerful nation on earth, the most affluent nation on earth. Why can't people, all people have a job? And so you're right. The innocence died on November 22nd, 1963. Absolutely. I, I am just as horrified for the Oswald family as I was for Absolutely. the Kennedy family. I mean, and, and maybe even to agree a certain degree more so because, you know, sure. Kennedy had nothing to do with his own assassination and certainly his family didn't. But look what the Oswald family had to go through. Right. I, I mean... And as I said before, and I hate to repeat myself, but even if Lee had assassinated President Kennedy, Tippett, and the man on the moon, yeah, how do you how do you have the system and indecency to crucify the family? Absolutely. Well, we're we're running. We're only about a minute left. Tony, did you okay. have any anything else you want to say? I appreciate you stepping in for me. Are you there? Well, I just uh, just that ever since November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. If I have a passion about something, I just go after it. I was good friends with Muhammad Ali, uh, very close friends. I painted a picture of him one time. I got ringside yeah. tickets to his fights. You have fascinating uh, context, John. You should I have your own a, talk show. <laughs> I was a sparring partner for nine months with Ken Norton. Uh, and I was a sparring partner for two weeks with George Foreman. So I, wow. whatever, whatever I was passionate about, I went after. And it's, but I've never been more passionate about the JFK assassination and the RFK assassination uh, because of what it's done to this country. Absolutely. And I don't mean just the country as a whole, but the Kennedy family, the Oswald family, they none of them deserved it. Absolutely. I see Tony there. Tony, you have anything to add? I appreciate you. Uh, it would be hard to add anything, Don. What a great show. I just yeah. I, I soaked all the I'm going to listen to it again. Well, well I, you can send me a link. I greatly appreciate it. I really appreciate oh, absolutely. Ron, the opportunity because this is if my I pleasure. leave this earth, I want nothing more that I want 
uh, then to see my children and their, my grandchildren live prosperous, fa uh, friendly, happy lives, is to see this Oswald family achieve what it deserves. And Absolutely. that's only going to happen when Lee's name is finally cleared. And right. I've been carrying this since sixth grade. You are, you are a, a wonderful human being to do that, to care so much about this. And it is very important uh, there. And I hope uh, people got something out of the show to look at things a little bit differently. Uh, Deborah Wheeler, thank you for uh, uh, praising my shirt, uh, complimenting my shirt. And earlier, you're the only one that tells me to give Riley my crazy golden retriever a hug. So I'll do that. So you're a special fan. I appreciate it. Special listener. Uh, again, thanks everybody. Thank you, John Mancino. Thanks thank to Steve you. Cameron. Steve, Steve Cameron Productions.com. Go there. You find out everything you need to know. John, I hope you write a book or Steve puts everything in your book, but I really appreciate you sharing all this. Stuff. I'll wait for Steve's and see how it goes. And like I said, if you could send me a link to this program, I'd love to watch it again. Well, we, we definitely will do that. And thank you so much. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. I appreciate and the thank, opportunity. Thanks, everybody, for listening to I Protest. Thank you. Thank you.